on Plain Spoken, we like to do kind of reaction videos sometimes. It's good for clicks, but it's also good, you know, we get to have conversations about influential things and people, and who in Methodism is more influential than Reverend Adam Hamilton of the church in Leewood, Kansas, Resurrection. What? No, it's not. Church of the Resurrection. So uh, today, TJ and I are together in the studio with our friend Robbie Smith, we are part of a, uh, a men's discipleship group, meets weekly. It's uh, something between a class and a band. Uh, we've been together for, I don't know, over a year. It's been pretty nice, and Robbie is a consistent source of wisdom and humor. And so um, we three, Hicks and Nowata, thought it might be fun to kind of review some of the teachings of the most influential living Methodist figure. Um, and the intent here isn't so much to just poke holes and punch up it's more to um, talk around common understandings, contemporary understandings of theology, what might be lacking, what might be good. You know, Robbie, you're open to, to good things about Adam Hamilton's teaching, if there are some, right? If there are any, yes. Yes, okay. So, <laughs> so Robbie has seen some stuff uh, that hasn't really impressed him from Adam Hamilton. We might see some today. However, I kind of doubt it because TJ has selected the clips. I haven't seen any of the clips today. TJ is drawn. Yeah, no, I'm not very generous. No, yeah. well, you're drawn like a moth to the flames of heresy, <laughs> you know. So he's he's regularly watching things on his own. And uh, I said, hey, man, when when you see things that would be good for conversation that might get you know our 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 juices flowing, uh, just go ahead and save it. And so he saved. I, I just opened him six clips of Adam Hamilton's preaching. And then what I suspect is going to happen is you guys are going to be bashing him, and I'm going to be doing my best to play. Uh, devil's advocate, you know, here's how we can understand this, and it's not so bad. And you guys are going to love me as I stand up for Adam Hamilton. Does that sound like a good deal? Sounds great. Okay, so with our first clip, let's just get right into it. TJ, is there any any uh, intro? Uh, yeah, I don't remember the specific... Uh, uh, they're all various topics. They're not um, one specific topic. The first two are from the same... Uh, Sermon. I don't remember the sermon. I'll have to find the sermon. I'll post it in the. This the first notes. one you've entitled "Jesus Isn't the Only Way." Yeah, they're just universalist kind of stuff. So, and and you can play the first. Well, we can play the first one, and then we can see if there's anything to say on that, and then go to the second one. But All right, here from we go. The same. Here sermon. we. Here we go. Here we go. So again, my agnostic friend's question is: But does everybody else who doesn't see through your same lens as clearly as you do is everyone else going to burn forever in hell because they don't? So I love 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. It gives a uh, possible answer to this, or at least a hint. It says, God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is, so this is God's desire is that everybody would know him. There is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the human Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a payment to set all people free. So here's this idea that what Jesus has done uh, to save humanity, he did already once and for all in the past on the cross through his life, his death, and his resurrection. He has already paid whatever price needs to be paid for the sins of the world, the entire world. So this salvation is available through Christ. This is a Christian perspective, one Christian perspective on this. It's available through Christ. Now, we know that if we accept that, we find salvation. We trust in Christ. We accept it. We ask him to save, to deliver us. We accept the gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. But what about the people who don't know to accept, can't see clearly through that lens? Well, that, that price has already been paid. And many of us believe that God can give the saving work of Jesus. God can take that payment Jesus has made and apply it to anyone he chooses based upon what he sees of their own hearts. We say this when it comes to children who die who don't know Jesus yet, that what Jesus did to save us was already, you know, that price was paid for that child and they're safe in God's arms or somebody who's, who isn't able to comprehend these things. Maybe somebody whose mental capabilities are not there and yet we believe in the grace of God for them. Is it not possible that there are people who love God with all their heart and love their neighbors, they love themselves, just like Jesus said were the great commandments and God sees that and realizes that they were yearning for him even if they didn't know it. And so the saving grace of God through Jesus is applied to them. And, and so my hunch is there's going to be a whole lot of people you'd be surprised are going to be in heaven because of the grace of God. And when it comes to other faiths, I believe as a Christian that they are going to, when they get to heaven, they're going to see Jesus. And they're going to say, ah, oh, it was you all, the all along that I was searching for. All right, so let me set that up in a way that I think could make it more robust. The early church said that the ancient Hebrew patriarchs were accepted into heaven because even though they didn't know Christ Jesus, they yearned for him. 
They also did that to the ancient Greek philosophers that laid the stage for Western Christianity, saying that they were clearly hungering for Christ Jesus as well. And then, yeah, traditional Christian doctrine from a lot of different traditions says that infants who die before a point of confession, as well as mentally disabled people, can and will be received by God into everlasting glory with Him. So what is to keep God from accepting people um, who, who have hungered and thirsted for righteousness, who didn't know Jesus, from also being accepted into God's embrace? So... Um, Robbie, it's your no, no, no. Let's de- defer to TJ first while you're you're percolating because you've already seen this, TJ. What what do you think is worth saying about this particular clip? So is there is there a line somewhere? Because I would say that I've got I've got a Muslim friend. He he he's very faithful um, to the Islamic belief, um, but we recognize that he's probably not going to go to heaven because he doesn't know Jesus. He knows a Jesus, not the real Jesus. Um, yeah, the Quran speaks about Jesus. Yeah, he's just a prophet. He's not actually God. About yeah, him, yeah, he didn't die for your sins. He didn't do anything like that. Yeah. Would Adam Hamilton would say, yeah, he's probably going to heaven. And I think rightly most Orthodox Christians would say, uh, probably not. That's a different gospel. Paul says, you've got a different gospel. You're... Anathema. Yeah, like, we were covering we that last this, night yeah, in Galatians. Night. Yeah. So, so what the standard that Hamilton set up near the end was: if they love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves, the greatest commandments that Jesus established. Well, if he they, makes those as out as the only commandments, and it's not what that says. Those are the all, all of the other commandments hang on those. Yes. Two. Those aren't the only two commandments. I think no. that's a ridiculous presupposition. But well, if anyways. so, what what Hamilton and others I suspect believe is. All the other commandments boil down to those things. So if you are attending yeah, upon they... those, then God might be gracious. Uh, so he makes it into a question, God, is God able? To which the answer is always, he's yeah. able. Yes, sure. he can do anything he wants. Not, that's not the question. The question is, who has he told us he is? What has he told us he's going to do? So as you hear TJ talking on that, what what's lacking in that conversation? I zeroed in on that last statement that he made about uh, people of other faiths. Mm-hmm. And we know that people of other faiths are not perfect in their faith, just as um, the ancient Jewish people were not perfect in their faith. Even the Apostle Paul stating that he, you know, he had one tri- thing that tripped him up in the law, and therefore he was guilty of all the law. Mm-hmm. And the Bible makes it clear that if you are not in Christ, you are going to be judged by your own beliefs, and you are going to fail. You have to be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit to make it into heaven. Mm. And Jesus made that clear. I'm not sure he knows I, I think he's he's twisting Christ here. He he doesn't know what Jesus meant when he said things because possibly he doesn't even know what Jesus I don't know what Jesus he's talking about. Do you th- just out of curiosity, do you think that uh the ancient Hebrew patriarchs are uh welcome in the kingdom or do you think that Absolutely. So by what and, Hebrews tells us that, that it was through faith. Mm-hmm. Faith in God made it clear at the beginning mm-hmm. that He would provide a sacrifice for our sins. And the ancient patriarchs, the prophets, they all had faith in that sacrifice for our sins. Although they didn't see it yet, mm-hmm. they knew that God was going to perform it. Mm-hmm. And that was salvation. So by that standard, is it possible for non-Hebrews to have a, a personal way of life and faith that points towards uh, an anticipation of a sacrifice that they don't even know has been made yet? Well, I'm not sure what you're asking there. But <laughs> so, so hypothetically, the Hebrews knew that a sacrifice was needed to atone for sin and that God alone could provide 
that sacrifice and that the, the work of faith would solidify them with that sacrifice. Is there any way outside of Christianity and Judaism for other people to come to that conviction? Say the ancient Greek philosophers or a contemporary Muslim? There is a way for them to come to Christ. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Okay. Well, the, the thing that I picked on was the, the use of the word all in this scripture that he quoted, that, that Christ's uh, blood atones for all sin of all people. I forget the exact language. Yes. Which none of us would argue. Well, okay, so Reformed Christians would argue with that because they have the doctrine of limited atonement. His blood is not enough to atone for all humans, all people. But Wesleyans... Well, and, I don't think it... Not that it is not enough. It doesn't cover all of them, I guess, is probably the Reformed. All who would receive it. So that's well, what that's Wesleyans would say. Wesleyans yeah. would say his blood is absolutely enough to cover the, all the sin of all people for yes. all time, no question. But the, the thing on which it hinges is whether or not we choose him back. He's already chosen us. He's already chosen... But do we choose him back? Reformed people would say there's no choice to make. You know, you don't get to make a choice. God well, makes he, all the choices. He chooses. God chooses. Yeah. And Wesley would not say, that, and not that his blood is not enough to cover everybody's sins. It's yeah. So they would believe that. I tend to be more reformed. Yes. Um, it's does he choose or do you choose? And in the reformed position, he chooses. But we're going to get well, that. That's I In mean, the Wesleyan we tradition, of God chooses first, and then the question is, do we choose him back? In the Reformed tradition, sure. there you is no choice. choosing him yeah. back because we don't have choice. Yeah. So it's... You're dead in your sense. It's foreordained in Reformed theology. The vast majority of humans are going to die forever, eternity. They're not choosing him because he, he in, a sen- in essence, didn't choose them. Yeah, he doesn't choose them. In Wesleyan theology, he chooses everybody and only some receive. In Reformed theology, he only chooses a few, a minority, and they don't choose him back. They just are participating in um, uh, uh, irresistible grace. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) So there was a point that I was going to disagree with, and I don't recall what it is. But we're getting off in the weeds. Like this is well, the 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 question is all. Whenever we're talking about all, and and the New Testament clearly says Christ died for all. A lot of people infer from that that because it's enough, all will be saved. And so uh, what I think all three of us would say is, no, not all are going to be saved, because um, I think if you're Reformed, you would say, because God has chosen not to save a lot of people, and Wesleyans would say, because a lot of people have chosen not to be saved, and God honors our wishes. That's correct. Well, I mean, my view, I feel like it's a little more complicated than the traditional, like, Reformed belief like yeah. yes or no it's i don't think it's as black and white but whatever that's well me neither me neither i i think yeah. there's a synthesis of the two that is uh the reality that my brain just can't comprehend well i could point out here that from the beginning christ showed himself as our high priest showed himself to adam and eve as their great high priest when he sacrificed an animal for their sins, and he covered them with with that animal's skin. Adam and Eve? Yes, oh, wait. yes. So the skin that they were provided once they had fallen into sin, that God provided for them was, was not, poof, here's a skin. It's Jesus shows up as high priest, sacrifices an animal for their sins, skins it, makes clothes out of it, here you go. Yes, it was a, it was a symbol of them of how to proceed, you know, how they were going to be accepted and uh, and then he he promised the seed of the woman that uh, he would be their redeemer hmm. and that explains the whole story of the error of Cain was that he did not want to go through um, the sacrifice. program that God had laid out. So he did not yeah, want to Abel go was the happy to sacrifice. raise animals and offer sacrifice. He said, "I'm I'm good enough as I as I am. Cain. You need to accept me the way I am." I'd never heard that interpretation before. That's, had you heard that before, T? Yeah, I've heard that. I, it, I mean, it kind of makes sense with the Cain and Abel thing. Like, why why is God rejecting um, 
Cain's. That's what makes God just in rejecting Cain's is because both of them had a knowledge already of what would please God just, because Jesus had modeled that's, it. That's just like many people in our society today do not believe they need to have a sacrifice for mm-hmm. their sins. Okay. They don't need to change. God needs to accept them just as they are because God is love. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go on to the second cl- clip. It is called um, Other Religions Are, are Valid or something valid? like that. I don't remember. Yeah, it's it's right after he says this. He's, it's the same sermon. Other um, Religions Are Just as Valid. Okay, yeah. here we go. Adam Hamilton. And when it comes to other faiths, I believe as a Christian that they are going to, when they get to heaven, they're going to see Jesus. And they're going to say, ah, oh, it was you all, the t- all along that I was searching for. But I don't fear that those folks will spend eternity in hell. So, you know, this is a view that this is the sort of official position of the Catholic Church. It's where most mainline Protestant theologians come out. Many evangelicals, C.S. Lewis, uh, John R.W. Stott, uh, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, uh, you know, Justin Martyr in the early church, that many held this view of the fate of people who are not followers of Jesus Christ, who may be following Jesus and they don't even know to call upon his name. Here's one thing I'm certain of. Jesus calls us to love our neighbors and even our enemies, we're to practice love. That includes our neighbors who are Muslim, our neighbors who are Jewish, our neighbors who are Hindu, our neighbors who are Buddhist or atheist or agnostic. There's just no question that we're called to love. And we're called to see them as God's offspring, so they are our siblings, even if we don't share the same faith. That was... (laughs) Adam Hamilton, why did you do that? You know that's wrong. That's brutal. Well, okay, so on the last one, it's very clear. The only people who are children of God, according to the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, is that you die to self and are born again by Those water and the Spirit. Again. Yeah. Yes. Only they are allowed to become but children of God. That's a common, common misconception nowadays. I feel like everybody's like, yeah, everybody's a child of God. Everybody's a child of God. No, that's a doctrine of the 20th image. century in America, the brotherhood of all men. That is an unchristian doctrine that everybody just takes for granted in yeah. America. Well, they're they're convoluting the the we're made in God's image and mm-hmm. then we're children of God. Like well, we're all made in God's image, yes, but we're not all children of God. I'm I'm a little less forgiving of people that teach this stuff. Mm-hmm. I say he's calling Jesus a liar because Jesus said because this is not what Jesus taught. Right, Jesus taught, I am um, the gate. No one gets to the Father except through me. And narrow is that gate. Yeah. And wide is the path that leads to destruction, Adam. Uh, He said that Stott agrees with him on this. John Wesley agrees with him. He just threw out all these names. Justin Martyr. Um, Yeah, yeah. that's not true either. Yeah, no, that's ridiculous. I, I, I wonder if he has like show notes or something for this where we could look at his citations or something. Unless he, I don't think so. That would, I'd have to look. C.S. This, Lewis. This is a a, a revelation mm-hmm. to me because, and now I know why um, why Elijah killed all of the prophets of Baal and priests of Ishtar. <laughs> it was to give them a head start. Oh yeah, on changing their minds. Yeah, let me let me kill you so that you can go see Jesus and go, oh, this is who we were wanting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, no, every, all, I, I, so I would agree with that first part. All of them will see Jesus. Oh, sure. But yes. by then, it's going to be every too late. Every knee will bow, like, every yeah. tongue confess that yes. They're going to be like, Lord. oh, yeah, it was you all along, but it's not going to be like... It's not going to be, oh, I can oh, come now. I it's going to be, my mind. oh, yeah. no. And if you look right. at it in the prophetic, they will see Jesus and they will try to hide under every rock right. and in caves. Because it will say, fall on us. His glory, his purity, his righteousness is, is so above us that uh, they can't even look at him. So in, David Platt gives a good sermon on this, and I realize a lot of people don't like him anymore, but he says, if people can make it to heaven without Jesus, but then when you offer Jesus and someone comes to Jesus, this high standard of the new covenant is on them, and then damnation is is possible, then the meanest thing you can do to somebody is to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, because then they're accountable to it. So the notion I, I get here is that 
if somebody can be saved outside of Jesus, then to offer them Jesus is at best unnecessary and at worst very harmful to them. And so you've turned this blessing of Christ Jesus into essentially an irrelevant curse, which is yeah. a huge problem. But also undergirding what he offers here is is what we we're just kind of skirting on, this notion that you can die and experience the truth and then repent after this point of death. And yeah, the we... whole impetus of the New Testament is you don't want to get... That point is too late. Yes. And Jesus tells the story of the Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man goes to hell, and he wants to repent or, or help his family to repent, and the answer is very clear, no. If they are already disregarding what Moses and the prophets said, even someone coming back from the dead is not going to persuade them. What's been given is enough. That is the only opportunity given. And there is a great chasm between you and us. Can't be breached. Yeah, Cannot be breached. So the, the moral of the story is the way we live has consequences. When you listen yes. to this Adam Hamilton piece, it doesn't feel like the con- doesn't feel like much is on the line. You know, if someone makes a bad decision, if they follow the wrong faith, if they don't acknowledge Christ for who he is, that's not necessarily consequential. You can come back from that. It, but what the impression you get from reading your Bible is, no, that is that is the central, most important question of life. And so what you have is, in the name of Jesus, someone getting up and making the most important question feel like something less than that. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that contradicts everything we know that God tells us about ourselves. Um, the heart of man is deceitful above all things. Mm-hmm. And man is not able to see God on his own because his heart is impure. Um, David prayed, you know, create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, mm-hmm. O Lord. And the, the only way to have a pure heart is for Christ to live in you because you must die. Mm-hmm. All who are in Adam must die. <laughs> Adam, the first Adam. Yes. <laughs> the next clip, the paralyzed man wasn't actually physically paralyzed. Anything oh, to say about yeah. this before no, we get into it? That's exactly basically what I uh, labeled it. Here we go. All right, so, so once more, Jesus is in this house. This becomes his home base in Capernaum. And this is what we read. Some people arrived and four of them were bringing to him a man who was paralyzed. So remember, there was a huge crowd around the door. They couldn't get in. They brought a man who was paralyzed. They couldn't carry him through the crowd. So they tore off part of the roof above where Jesus was. And then they made an opening and they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed man was lying. I love this story. I preached about this a lot. You know, you've got this picture of four friends and their buddy is paralyzed. He can't move and they don't know what to do to fix him, but they do know Jesus is a healer and they put him on a mat, on a stretcher and they carry him. They become his stretcher bearers. They carry him to Jesus. They can't get in the door. They hoist him up on the roof and this is Peter's house and they start pulling off the mud thatch roof to, you know, to create a hole in the roof. I, I can just imagine what Simon Peter is thinking as he's looking up and seeing this giant hole in his roof. I don't think he's any, any too happy, but Jesus looks up and I'm guessing he's smiling and they lower this man down on ropes, uh, on, on ropes, uh, in on his stretcher and lower him right before Jesus. And I love how the gospels talk about this. They say, because of their faith, Jesus healed the man. And you know how he healed him? He said, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven. Now get up, take up your mat and walk. And part of what this tells us is that physical maladies sometimes come from spiritual or psychological causes right? Psychosomatic. So in this case, the man was struggling with some terrible guilt that he'd experienced and he could not walk anymore because of the guilt that had paralyzed him, right? And so Jesus sets him free. He knows the answer is not with his spinal column. It's with his heart and his mind to know that he's forgiven. And Jesus forgives him. And the man walks out of that place whole. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. Did you like that? (laughs) That made me angry. It's not, uh, not an issue with his spine. It's an issue with his head and his heart. It's psychosomatic, yeah. 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 Now, okay, are there ever situations in which a person is having a psychosomatic issue? Is psychosomatic? Yes, that does sure, happen. Sure, that can be an issue. Yeah. That happens. The question is, is that what happened? He paraphrases the, the story, story wrong. 
because yes. he says, your sins are forgiven. And then people present say, who is this man to forgive sins? And he says, do you question yes. my authority to do so, so that you might believe you get up your, uh, take up your mat and walk away. So it's two different things. He speaks to him twice. The second time, the healing to validate his his ability, his authority to forgive sins. Yes, and, and I would say that that was intentional. He left that out intentionally because he doesn't believe in that Jesus. He does not acknowledge that Jesus is that man's creator. And, Adam uh, Hamilton doesn't? Yeah, the, from what I'm, I've gathered from him so far. He doesn't you know, think that Jesus is He's not creator. up there glorifying Christ. Who he's glorifying he? the man, you know. <laughs> Hamilton is. You don't yeah. think he's. You don't think he thinks that Jesus actually is God. Is that what you're trying to say? I well, at this point, I would I would think that he doesn't know the Jesus that we know. So what I would say, okay, he is very clear. He confesses the apostles and Nicene creeds. Whenever he says that Christ is Lord, he is not crossing his fingers behind his back. However, what you're highlighting is the Jesus that he serves does not need to be capable of supernatural physical healing. So he would say that the truth of Jesus hinges not on these healings, but upon the truth of his message. And people like you and I would say is, the two were synonymous, and if he was either faking it or if it was only psychosocial or psychosomatic, that that he was a liar. Yeah. Yeah, why can't a therapist just do that? Why do you need Jesus? If, if that's the case, if it wasn't an issue with the spinal cord, why, why didn't they just send a social worker over there to, to fix it? So what guy? I wonder is, what a lot of liberals have taught is that Christ Jesus is actually the embodiment of an ideal, the logos which all people are drawn to, and some people come closer to than others. And so, essentially, I think what they would say is, the name of Jesus, the personality of Jesus, well, he already said it isn't necessary for salvation. You can have Muhammad, you could have Buddha, you could have... The name doesn't matter. What matters is the content of the message, which boils down to, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and that so far as you spend your life seeking these things, it doesn't matter what name or personality you associate that with. That is the good life. That's a life worth living. I don't know enough about Adam's teaching to know whether what he thinks about the supernatural. Does he believe that there are demons? Right, yeah. A lot of liberals, um, most liberals don't believe that. Yeah, the world is just what we can see. Yeah. But um, the supernatural is there, and if he's denying the supernatural, then he's denying that very spirit of God that, that comes to live in us. Well, because I'm just now noticing the next clip TJ have for us is called Evil Spirits Probably Don't Exist. We know better today. So oh, that's yeah. a natural segue. Let's, let's hear what he says here. Suddenly, there in the synagogue, a person with an evil spirit screamed, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One from God. Silence, Jesus said, speaking harshly to the demon. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit shook the man and screamed, and then it came out. I mean, this is a pretty dramatic story of an exorcism. And, and we find that there are four stories of exorcisms that Jesus, uh, that Jesus does in the Gospels. Four of them in the Gospel of Mark. Three of those are repeated in Matthew's Gospel and three in Luke's Gospel. John doesn't mention exorcisms at all. So, but we see this here in the earliest strata of our stories of Jesus, that Jesus is exorcising unclean spirits. Now, you know, there's questions that we have with this. Like most of us don't go around seeing unclean spirits and they seem to be all over the place in the first century. And part of what we recognize is that at least some of what was attributed to unclean spirits or demons were things that we explain in other ways today. So whether that's schizophrenia or whether that might be depression. I remember King Saul was, would struggle with an evil spirit, the Bible says, and it seemed to be that he struggled with depression. And, King, and David, who would be a successor, came and played a harp, and that, that somehow subdued the evil spirit. Well, that, that may have been a mental illness or a struggle with depression as opposed to a, a spirit. When people couldn't explain medical conditions, sometimes they attributed those 
to demonic activity or to uh, evil spirits. So we think about muteness. And when somebody couldn't speak, it was thought that there was a spirit, an unclean spirit that closed their mouths so they were not able to speak. Or it was thought sometimes that epilepsy, actually almost always epilepsy was considered a form of demon oppression or, or, uh, or possession. And today we understand those things differently. So were there demons in the first century that Jesus was casting out? I'm good with that. I mean, I believe that he very well could have done that. And if, if they were demon possessed, then that's exactly what happened. But there are probably other explanations for at least some of these things that we see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's that, oh, well, you don't really have to believe this. I believe this, but, you know, it's, it's whatever. It's not a real... Could yeah, be, that's, could that's, be. that's relevant. Yeah, that's really helpful to point out because I think that is the tack that Hamilton takes a lot of the time. Yeah, we'll of, see that in another clip, too. He does the same thing. Yeah, I believe this, but you don't have to, which is the liberal... Uh, th- that's... When liberal in the United Methodist Church, liberals have often argued, hey, y'all are arguing like we've all gone off the deep end. I haven't. I confess these doctrines, and I can be in relationship with these people who don't. And the conservatives go, your indifference to good doctrine is very concerning. So this man obviously is a very intelligent guy. He has a lot of learning behind him, but it's... Uh, ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In fact, in in what he said there about how many times it's recorded that Jesus cast out demons, there are many more demons that Jesus cast out. Mm-hmm. In Luke chapter 4, they were bringing him demon-possessed people, and he was casting them out. Yeah, he gives the impression that this was like some kind of minority account of the Bible when it's very clear throughout the the gospels that he is casting out demons everywhere he goes. Yes. Well, you know, you notice what he did too, the the earliest strata kind of thing. Like he does he 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 holds the position, okay, Mark was first mm-hmm. and then maybe Matthew or maybe Luke and then John way back, you know. Way well, later he inverts on. it though because the theory is that John has the highest Christology where he's the closest to God and Mark is he's most human. But then he's saying the Mark has the the stories of um, exorcisms but John doesn't. So you would expect it to be inverted if he's... Yeah, you would, he's, you would think, but I, I don't know what it is. Well, so for, for us, we don't have to... We believe that the Gospels were all written early, that they're historical accounts, and yeah, that there wasn't an evolution of Christology over no, time. So it's a ridiculous presupposition. This is just one of those things that goes against the theory that he, he, he doesn't even acknowledge. He just is, is saying there are four minority accounts. There are hundreds of stories of Jesus, only four of him exercising demons, and you can believe they're demons. I'm cool with that, if you, you know, whatever, but you don't have to. Yeah. And the only reason why someone would even ask this question is if they are a scientific materialist and they refuse on its face yes. to accept supernaturalism. Well, and it's, again, are there cases where people could say that, oh, this person has a, a demon and it's actually epilepsy? Sure, yeah, yeah. That's, not, that's not an issue. It's, did it happen in the Gospels? Is, it, is Jesus actually just incorrect as to what's going on and these aren't demons they're just medical conditions but he's just a an ignorant peasant and doesn't actually understand it so this particular story is near the beginning of Jesus ministry from what i understand yeah and you have all these people around and they don't see Jesus they see a man right They see a man performing miracles, but these spirit beings, they see Jesus for who he is. Right, the demons believe, and they You're not fooling us, Lord. You're not fooling us with that flesh surrounding your your, uh, glory. They see him as the Christ, the son of the living God, Mm -hmm. and every time he has an encounter with the demons where he casts them out, yeah. mm-hmm. they say that to him. Right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Mm-hmm. Have you come to torment us mm-hmm. before our time? <laughs> so they, they might just have schizophrenia, you know, just like when they're speaking yeah. in tongues, they might've just drank some wine. Just a know? mass As if that can possibly explain the supernatural revelation that's going on. Yeah. And then you get someone who's very learned validating something that's on its face preposterous. And I think I, I love the Luke story because immediately after it, it speaks of Jesus casting out all of these demons, mm-hmm. they come across a leper. 
and this leper sees him from far off. And I think this guy, you know, he's supposed to be walking around yelling, unclean, 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 don't come near me. But he sees Jesus, and I think he sees him the way the demon saw him because he runs to him, mm-hmm. and he falls down flat on his face in the dust and says, Lord, you can make me clean. You can cleanse me. Mm-hmm. And it's a picture of how we have to come to Christ because it's a picture of him dying, mm-hmm. the the old man dying from dust you were made and to dust you will return. And there he is laying himself in the dust. In the dust yeah. He's unclean. He's covered with with leprosy, which is a picture of, of his sin, our sin. Mm-hmm. And Jesus touches this unclean man, which if he were just a man, he wouldn't do that. No. But, or if he did, there would be bad consequences for him, yeah. Yeah, and it, he touches him, and the leprosy, Dissipates. he's made new. Yeah. His, his skin is made new, and uh, it's gone. So it's a picture of Christ touching you mm-hmm. and you becoming a new creation. So I think, so the thing I... Uh, I'm willing to consider that our inward state has a relationship with our outward state. So for for people like Adam Hamilton, materialistic, scientific, modern men, they would say there are issues that are just psychological, there are issues that are just biological. That's not the sense you get when you read the Bible. You get the sense in the yeah. Bible that everything's connected. And as we've had this rise of the scientific mindset in the West— you look at the rise of psychotherapy, pharmaceuticals, medicine, do you see us actually solving mental illness? Do you see us solving these biological maladies? No. You see a bunch of people pretending to understand it, even though we can't locate uh, schizophrenia in the brain or in genetics. We still have this causative uh, scientific model, even as our society grows more mentally ill, more sick. And so we create this illusion that we have control over this, we understand this, when ancient societies who had this this spiritualized understanding seem to have actually been more psychologically healthy, more physically healthy. And so it's funny that we stand at this place and scoff at them as though we've mastered it when actually they're further ahead in healing than we are today. And we might have chemotherapy and, and some amazing drug therapies, but I'm just talking about in the broader picture as we continue to detach the, the notion of mind and body from the spirit, we see continued increase of maladies and unhealth. So yes. I, I think that the path we need to—we need pastors that say, hey, demons are real, the spiritual plane is real, and if you don't identify on a spiritual level, if you don't think spiritual health is important, then you can expect nothing. You will have psychological issues. You will have physical issues because everything is connected. And so as you receive— that's not to say that Jesus is a cure-all, that if you receive Jesus, your cancer will go away. But that's to say sometimes Jesus does heal cancer. Sometimes he does heal our bodies. Sure. Sometimes he restores our, our minds. And if you're close, the, the number one way to determine that Jesus is not going to do that stuff is to believe he can't even do it in the first place. It's not even necessary. If I belong to him, he can do whatever he wants with me. Mm-hmm. If he wants to teach me obedience through suffering, then that's what I must go through. Mm-hmm. But he wants me to be faithful through all of it. Mm-hmm. And there is no other there's no other explanation other than I belong to him. He gave his life for me and he has become a life giving spirit. In my life is hidden in Christ. Mm-hmm. So whatever he wants me to go through, that's what I'm going to go through, and I will praise him. And that becomes very clear if you're clear 
that Jesus can do these things and does do these things. Yes. But what Hamilton's doing is positioning an acceptable Christian faith for those who preclude the possibility that Jesus can and does do these things. Because he is the beginning of creation. Jesus. He he is he created all things. Mm-hmm. Colossians 1:15. Yes. Whether it's both seen and unseen. So if you think there's not unseen things out there, well, you're just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> TJ, anything to add? Nope, that's, I think that's good. Let's go to the next one. All right, the next clip is entitled Alleged Bible Contradictions. Oh, yeah, that's fun stuff. The overarching message of Scripture is trustworthy, and we, you know, we find it speaks to us, and God speaks through it. But if you find one error, you're going to throw the whole thing away? That seems like a pretty shaky faith. I said, so let, let's, let, me, let me ask you one other question. I said, uh, in our debate that we would have at your church, if I could prove just one mistake in the Bible, will I have won the debate? He said, absolutely. I said, okay, well, I I can think of hundreds, but let me just give you one. I said, "Um, where did Jesus ascend to heaven from? And he stopped for a second. I said, so you do remember, right? Let me just show you on the map here. Uh, In uh, in Luke's gospel, Jesus ascends to heaven from uh, the the Mount of Olives by Jerusalem. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus ascends to heaven from the Galilee. I said, now look, there's like 75, depending on the route, 75 to 90 miles difference between these two towns. Matthew says one, Luke says the other. They can't both be right. So one of them is wrong. I don't know what you want to call that, but one of them has the the place wrong, the location wrong. One of them is by the Sea of Galilee. One of them is in Jerusalem. So I said, it seems to me that I just showed you one mistake in scripture. And and I said, I got a whole bunch more. I could do that with you. And I don't want to do that in front of your congregation. So let me just ask, you know, does that really, is your whole faith built on this? Because here's what happened. For the fundamentalists, they said this, because the Bible is inerrant, we believe all these things that the Bible teaches. And I said, it seems to me like your whole faith has crumbled because I showed you one error. And I said, that doesn't seem like a strong faith to me. Here's what I want us to recognize, what I want us here to recognize, is that, is that when we look at the scripture, we're going to, you know, for me, I, so that example of, uh, of the ascension of Jesus to heaven, I don't really care whether it happened in Jerusalem or in the Galilee. It just doesn't make any difference to me. It happened. And, and knowing that Matthew and Luke wrote their gospels 50 years after the time of Jesus, it doesn't surprise me that one of them thinks it happened in, in the Galilee and one of them thinks it happens in, in Jerusalem. They maybe had different you know, traditions that were teaching them. And it doesn't really matter because the important thing was that Jesus ascended to heaven and before he did, he promised to come back and he gave the great commission before he left. That's what really matters. Okay, so, so when we think about this, there's another way of thinking about uh, how we look at scripture. And, uh, and, and, and instead of God secretly you know, telling the scripture writers exactly what to say and having an inerrant Bible, I think it's more like a biography. So he, uh, I was expecting like the shellfish thing or, uh, uh, yeah, no, he didn't go that route. Okay. Um, he, so, I hadn't even heard this one before. So yeah. you already have it pulled yeah, up, I, TJ. Go I ahead. had to look it up. Cause I'm like, surely that's not, that's not correct. It's, it's wrong. I don't know where he's getting that. So I'm going to, I'm going to read Luke. It's in the Luke 24, the end of the chapter, mm-hmm. obviously, because it's the ascension. Mm-hmm. So Luke 24, 50, it says, when he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. So that's Bethany, Bethany in Luke. So Matthew, Matthew 28 um, you've got the resurrection, uh, it's got the report of the guard, and then it's got the Great Commission. It doesn't even say anything about the ascension at all. So this is how Matthew ends. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's how. That's it. it. That's how it ends. So he's not right at all about that. It doesn't say anything about Jesus ascending in Matthew. So, so the premise of this whole example is Luke has an ascension account. Matthew has an ascension account. They both locate these events in two different places. You're saying that sets up uh, from it, from its very beginning that's false because yeah, no, Matthew does not he, have an ascension account. Notice he doesn't read. If if somebody gives you a story and they don't actually read the scripture to you, you probably should go back and look at it yourself. Like just don't believe them face value because obviously he's wrong. Like So in Matthew, I mean this story is in Galilee, 
but to conclude that Jesus ascended from there yeah. is to conclude something that he's giving the, text the great commission say. in Galilee, but it doesn't say anything about the ascension. Jesus told them to go to Galilee and wait for me. This was after his resurrection, mm -hmm. he sent that message from was it Mary or John or whoever from the tomb. Mm -hmm. Tell them to go to Galilee, and, and I will meet them there. So he's talking about a totally separate incident. I can understand. So I have a frustration sometimes with the way that the Bible tells stories. So yeah. like if we're talking about Jesus appeared as great high priest and made skins for Adam and Eve, I sure wish it told the story that way. I wish it had said, and the great priest, priest appeared and made a sacrifice, and Adam and Eve saw it, and they received the pattern of... Blood sac that would make it very easy for me. We've already talked about Balaam's error and how the, the story of Numbers doesn't even cover the sin that then he's held accountable for in the New Testament. There are certain things that the Bible chooses not to explain for one reason or another, and you have to carefully read through it to, to fill out the parts. This is one of those things where Luke is concerned with describing the ascension, Matthew's concerned with other things. And the a Western mind would say... Why not describe the ascension? That is one of the most important things in the... Why would you choose not even to cover that? Obviously, we are right in imputing and in, in, in collating, collapsing these two stories together to which the, the Bible does not lend itself to our notions of common sense. And so this kind of sloppy Western way of trying to fit the Scripture into a box is going to lead to a lot of this very unnecessary and I very problematic way of saying the Bible... When the Bible, you're saying the Bible contradicts itself because of your own biased reading of it. It's so, it, it lacks self awareness and, and then it wounds other people's faith because, hey, this is a smart yes. guy. He spent his life in service of it. He's, get, he's got one example to give here and his example sucks. Yes. Yeah, that's wrong. <laughs> How disappointing. Yeah. He says it's like a biography and he goes on from there, but it doesn't, it's just a, story that doesn't really it's not pertinent so the, okay let's okay so the larger conversation is our relationship with the scriptures should it be literal it says it i believe it that ends it or should there be a notion that um i don't need the bible to be literally historically scientifically true on every single thing the 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 message throughout is consistent and i can discern that without conforming everything to my literal, historical, scientific mindset. Uh, he says, in the end, I, I don't, I don't, I, that's not important to me, this, this detail of where it happened. I, I'm something close to a biblical literalist. I think you guys are too. How does Absolutely. one... Absolutely. Sure, yeah. But I don't think it's just all should be taken literal. Like, you had to be a little nuanced about it and use your brain. Like, well, that, God gave it to yeah. you for a reason. There are places in the Bible where it wasn't intended to be taken literally. Yeah, it's quite obviously poetic. Or, yeah. yeah. So a little common sense helps us to be great. But also, I mean, the, the mindset I've come to the Bible with is I would rather be guilty of taking it too literally than not literally enough. You know, if I'm getting to Jesus' judgment seat and he's going, Jeffrey, you didn't take that seriously enough, and I'm going, I thought it was just a metaphor. You know, like that's not, I mean, he's not going to be like, oh, okay, then, you know, I, under, I understand how you got confused, Jeffrey. Like, that's not a valid reason to be unfaithful. So I would much rather have a lot of serious preachers disagreeing about what's literal and what's metaphorical and, and erring on the side of literalism rather than having somebody get up and just say, a lot of metaphor, we can boil it down to the things that we obviously see are important. He, uh, this man places a lot of, faith and trust in science, obviously. And science, if you go back, it's wrong all the time. It's wrong, and then they change it. It's wrong, and then they change it. It's wrong, and then they, they come up with a new explanation because it didn't fit what they it, said it was. It could get disproven. Yeah, scientific conclusions are regularly wrong. Science, at its best, is a definition of a process of exposing things to scrutiny and tweaking them along the way. Science is not a threat to God. Uh, no. Theology is the queen of the sciences. 
but science is only true and worthy if it conforms to the truth of God, who yes. has designed everything. And so we 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 have this modern notion of this dispassionate set of uh, laws and principles that exists outside of God, or that God Himself is just a law or principle, and that fundamentally misunderstands the universe and will be in constant need of repair because it's fatally flawed yes. and insufficient for navigating the world. The Bible isn't that way. Even when science was was attacking creation with evolution, with uh, geology, with anthropology, there were a lot of faithful Christians were saying that isn't right. Mm-hmm. They're interpreting it wrong, and the more the more facts, not interpretations of facts, but facts that come out. They confirm the Bible account of creation, of uh, the history of man, and uh, the whole works. So, you know, you can believe in science all you want, but you're wrong. So are you going to quit because you're wrong? <laughs> so with that, like the uh, the next one, he, he leans, leans into science pretty heavy. So here we go. go. The last one. So I want to pause there for a moment and just say a word about the virgin birth. I mentioned last week that the virgin birth story is not so much about biology. It's not a lesson in biology. It's a lesson in theology. It's meant to tell us something about who is this one whose birth we celebrate? Who is Jesus? But I also want to recognize this. You know, the virgin birth isn't something you hear about a lot in the New Testament. You hear about it in Matthew and Luke's Gospels only. It doesn't appear anywhere else. Jesus doesn't go out preaching and saying, come follow me because I was born of a virgin. He never mentions it, not at all. And if you look in the book of Acts and the preaching of the early church, never once do you find in the preaching of the early church the mention of the virgin birth. You don't find it mentioned in Paul's letters anywhere. You don't find it mentioned in the letters of the other apostles. You don't find it mentioned in the book of Revelation. You don't find Jesus, or you don't find the idea that Jesus was born of a virgin found within any of these other texts. It actually, I take that back, it might be in the book of Revelation. I don't remember that. But for the rest, it doesn't show up there. Uh, Mark and John's gospel don't mention it at all. So it's likely that there were early Christians who did not know this story in the first century, yet followed Jesus, loved him, committed their lives to him, hailed him as their savior and Lord. So my point is, again, if you struggle with a a bit of doubt, you know, you're in good company with a lot of folks who either didn't know the story or, uh, or didn't really think it was the, you know, so central to their faith. So with that in mind, though, I want to say, you know, why do I believe in the virgin birth? Because I actually, I believe in the virgin birth. It doesn't make sense to me. It does in, at one level, and on another level, it doesn't make sense to me. Why do I believe in the virgin birth? I believe in the virgin birth because it was an important way. I believe it happened, although I don't understand how it happened. It was a mystery, but I believe it happened. And when I think about, you know, how this is sort of hard to believe, I think, well, wait a minute. Our own scientists have figured out how to clone. Actually, eight years ago, we figured out the technology to clone another human being. Scientists can create a human being in the laboratory now. We can fertilize eggs in the laboratory. We understand the DNA, our software that makes human beings. It took about 13 years to unravel the, the DNA of human beings. But you know, today we have the equipment to be able to unravel DNA in a device about the size that'll fit in your pocket. In fact, here's an image of, of this. It's the Minion, I think it's called the Minion Pocket Sequencer. Costs about $1,000 for this thing. You put a droplet of, you know, solution that has DNA in it, and you get out the human, you know, the genome of whatever it is you're sequencing. You get the, you know, the DNA that's broken down, and you get the genetic code. I mean, it's fascinating. And so if we can do this, that's about a $1,000 device. If we can do this today, what is it for the God of the universe to provide the data, to provide the software, to provide the information that completes the fertilization of Mary's egg and allows a child to be born that will be different than any other human being that's ever lived. Not Muhammad, not the Buddha, not, uh, not anyone, not Moses or Aaron or anyone else uh, was equivalent to what we find in Matthew and Luke's gospel in this one man, Jesus. And what they're trying to say to us is, is that God came to us in the flesh in Jesus. That there's something of divinity wrapped in humanity. We call it the incarnation or the enfleshment of God. So that whenever we look to Jesus, we see what Jesus does. We hear what he has to say. We watch him die on a cross. We see him resurrected from the grave. All of that is telling us something about God. God came and walked among us to show us who he is and what his will is for our lives. And so in the end, I believe this, not because it perfectly makes sense to me, but because the early church believed it. Matthew and Luke taught it. And when it comes to theology, it's, it's conveying something really, really important about who Jesus is. And so I choose to believe. And it makes sense to me in a, you know, in a certain way, and it certainly makes sense to me theologically. And I recognize that it's hard for some people to believe, and I think God recognizes that too.
So once again, I believe it, but you don't have to believe it. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. Validating unbelievers. Yeah. Yes. When he also says, well, you know, there's people in the early church that didn't believe it. And then right at the end, and that's like, an the argument. Believes it. The argument is from silence. It's yeah. not. They don't. There's nowhere in the Bible that the gospel writers or Paul or Peter or anybody says, "I don't believe this is true." They just don't address it. And yeah. the inference he makes is because it's not essential or important. Yeah, and I, I would also make the, the the distinction between knowing something and rejecting it, and then just not knowing about it, like. I think he he he's tries to make the point that well they they didn't know about this so they surely there were some early Christians that didn't know about it. So if you ask me, can early, someone early be saved without confessing the doctrine of the, the 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 incarnation? I would say no. Christ has to be fully God and fully man. Does someone have to know about? There, there's some things that I don't think are essential for salvation. I don't think you have to know every single thing necessarily. Otherwise, some early Christians are really well. In just bad okay. Shape. So like, but the, the moment that you are saying I don't believe in this, that's when I think you're yeah, renouncing. You, you God. know it and you reject it. Yes. Like the like the Trinity. Yes. Surely there were people in the early church that didn't like completely understand it, or well, I mean, not anybody completely understands mm -hmm. it now. Um, they couldn't articulate it. But if you can articulate it and you know about it and reject it, I think that's completely different. Because the, the reason for why you do so is what matters. So if I if what's the only reason to to refuse this doctrine? It's out of a scientific mindset where I'm not willing to under, to accept anything about God that I don't already understand, that I don't already allow for. Well, it's it's to, to deny that he is God, that Christ is God. The the virgin birth was a confirmation to the Jews that this is the Messiah, mm -hmm. because it was it was prophesied by Isaiah, Isaiah that he would be born of a virgin, and it is an important doctrine, but it it wasn't important to other groups of people to know that I guess, and I. I would venture to say that they did know that, that, that yeah. the apostles shared that with them. It just wasn't something they wrote about in their letters. The, and, the parchment that they wrote on was expensive. Yes. The process for generating it was intent, time and energy intensive. You, at the end of John, it says, if we were to write down all the stories about Jesus, there wouldn't be enough books to yes. contain it. So they have to do this prioritization of what's most important, what do I have to offer that hasn't been written down yet? And if the incarnation, the story of the incarnation and the mechanics of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary has already been written down, and you have unique stuff to offer that hasn't been written down, why would you... I mean, it's it, just because it's not included does not mean they didn't know it or they didn't think it was important. They just knew that they had other important things to offer that are necessary for salvation. And John wrote it in another way. He, uh, in the beginning was the Word, mm -hmm. and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, but a lot, a lot of the, uh, the New Testament was written to people that already believe. So they didn't have to mention this to them again. They don't have to rehash it every time they write something to them. But this guy is just tedious. So I think it's, Adam Hamilton is motivated by love of people to try and not make the bar any higher than he thinks it has to be yes. and to validate people as much as he can, which, of course, I think is... I mean, I would identify with that. I don't want to set the bar any higher than Christ Jesus has, and I don't want to condemn that which God loves. You know, this is something that every pastor, but Adam Hamilton draws his line way down here when it seems clear to us that the scriptural line is drawn way up here. And so I think Adam Hamilton is trying to make room in the church for people that Jesus himself says he doesn't want. 
He, it's not that he doesn't want these people, but there are conditions as to how Christ accepts us. And if sure. we are so concerned with worldly forms of knowledge and esteem that we're not willing to accept Christ on the terms he's presented, then we have discounted ourselves from the story of salvation. So I was remembering 1 Corinthians chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse 25, because the foolish of God is weaker, wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Skipping to verse 27, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. And so if you, uh, science is the ultimate wisdom of this age, and if everything has to conform to science, then I think uh, the Christian faith doesn't count for anything, because what the Christian faith requires is that we establish something above a worldly understanding of wisdom or science. And if our God is actually science, then that's our idol, because yes. that's, that, is, that is not God. And so we in the modern era are put in this position of, is the God of the Bible my God, who requires that I believe things that are just fundamentally uh, uh, hated by this world, or... Um, can I can I receive that? You know, can I be hated by the world for the sake of believing in Christ Jesus, whom I I don't understand, or is my faith limited to what I do understand? I, I think Hamilton makes room for people who limit their faith to what they can understand, and in so doing, I would say that he he sets the bar to a damnable level, and that he is lovingly escorting people to hell. Yes. TJ shaking his head. Yes, you're saying yes. God, okay. God will accept you just as you are, and he will put his stamp of approval on who you are right now today. Um, it's, it's a confirmation of the false argument that, um, that I was born this way. Mm-hmm. This, is the way I, this is the way I am. Well, God's going to accept you according to him, but according to Christ, mm-hmm. you must be transformed. Mm-hmm. He will not accept your sin. And the body of Christ, the ecclesia, was not made for those people. You have to be a part of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. You have to eat of his flesh, drink of his blood, be have the gifts of the Holy Spirit in you. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it wasn't made for all of this uh, um, leprosy to be sitting on the seat beside you. Mm. So wh- we did this, this whole, where we've made it through all of our segments now. Why did we do this? Is it just to start a fight? I really don't want to fight with Adam Hamilton. He has a lot more muscle than I do. Um, it, it's not necessarily to speak ill of someone, but the way I, I framed this at the beginning was: this is a very influential man. He's he's the head of the biggest United Methodist Church in our country. He has a voice, a platform that is huge, but he's using that platform in a way that that we at least find very problematic. A number of people do as as well. So the the a well, lot of I would pe- say it's his views are very similar to a lot of not just United Methodists, just yeah, universal lukewarm Christians in general. Um, so this is not just an Adam. Let's let's bash on Adam Hamilton. This is yeah. this is an example of what is preached in a lot of churches. So that's well. And remind me, the name's escaping me. The biggest church in the country is Life Life Church. That's, uh, that's no wife. No, the big Texas. Uh, oh, Prosperity you're talking Gospel. about okay. Um, What's his name? Oh my gosh! You know the guy with the Joel teeth. Osteen. There it is. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people. In Adam Hamilton's church, would would readily scoff at Joel Osteen and call him a charlatan because you know yeah. he's all about prosperity gospel and get that money and you know it's a, or I mean liberals hate prosperity gospel thing, but it's a lack of self awareness because essentially what liberal Christianity is is a spiritual prosperity gospel where you're given salvation at no cost. There is no costly grace. You know it's all about get that spiritual money, get that get that blessing without 
reckoning with the curse, without sin, without sacrifice, without blood atonement, without uh, mortifying your flesh. And so there's this is how you grow a big church. You know, someone might look at a big church and go, well, obviously he gets something right. And we would say, yeah, people pleasing. He gets people pleasing right. He tells them that they can eat sugar, drink milk, never have meat. And that's just not a loving thing to do. You got to eat your vegetables. You got to eat your meat. You got to go through a hard time. There's tribulation, suffering, self-denial. If you're not getting that, and I mean, okay, to be fair, Adam Hamilton probably does talk about suffering, self-denial, but he does it in a way where ultimately not much is on the line. There aren't consequences to how we live. Everyone's probably going to make it to heaven except for those who don't want to, and that hell is locked from the inside. We covered that on our hell segment with, uh, with Adam uh, Hamilton. So how another, do we want to wrap um, this up? Another denial of Christ that hell is locked on the inside. Mm. Jesus has the keys. Mm. Oh, that's right. To, he says that right out. And, yeah. To death and hell. Yes. And uh, this is... I don't. I don't know where this stuff comes from. It, it baffles me, but I would agree with them about the prosperity gospel, and um, I would point out that Jesus, the first sign of the end of days that Jesus spoke of, was people coming in His name, mm-hmm. saying that He is the Christ. Mm and deceiving many. And there will be many people doing this. So Satan is sending them out there, and he has all kinds of messages to draw you away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. TJ, this was this was your baby. These were your segments. So, how do you want to wrap all this up? I was going to let you wrap it up. I thought I thought that was this is pointing out that it's not it's not about Adam Hamilton. It's about yeah. problematic teachings. And yeah. if you can't recognize that these are problematic and why they're problematic, yeah. then this is worthy of the split in the United Methodist Church. Yeah. You know, as there well, are a lot it, of people who want to gaslight and say it's not that big a deal. We can all fit together. And then people like me would say, No, I, I really can't fit with this. I can't. I can't call this guy a brother that I understand to be ushering people into hell and helping them feel good about it along the way. This is, and you know, I wonder how many people are in the GMC that really aren't bothered by this. You know, so um, one of the one of the big like pushbacks is they is they they're vaguely saying that people don't believe in the virgin birth, mm-hmm. and this is kind of like directly denying the virgin birth. Essentially, like Adam Hamilton believes it, but he's saying that you don't have to actually believe it. Yeah. So this is just an example of. What people are saying, well, we don't have any examples of. Here's your example. Well, that's just like his last clip where you don't actually have to believe in Jesus. You're going to go to heaven anyway. Yeah, yeah. All right, I think I think we made the case pretty well. So um, if you've made it all the way with us, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, we, of course, want to hear your thoughts and reflections. If we missed out on any... I'm sure we missed out on a lot of things we could have picked on. Um, but anyway, if you, if you liked Robbie... Uh, we love Robbie. He's great in our group, so you're you're welcome to comment on that. If you didn't like Robbie, just, you know, save it. I don't care. I'm going to get mad at you. Don't say anything. If you don't like TJ, I'll listen to that, though, so TJ <laughs> can, can take <laughs> it. Um, but uh, we we enjoy doing this stuff. We're, we're talking about this stuff when the cameras aren't on. It's it's. I love having the, I would sit around and do this all day, every day, if I could. I think there are a lot of people that probably just don't have anyone to talk to about this stuff and think through, and people who haven't been bathing in the word as as you have Robbie so I hope this has been a blessing to you um, if you liked it enough let us know and uh, we might do it again I, I can be TJ actually persuaded Robbie to come today so we might do this again so anyway um, make sure to like this and subscribe to it and share it with any friends that you think would enjoy it and then let us know if there's anyone else you want us to cover and if you really want us to cover it you Clip it up and just send us the clips, and we can just riff on anything. Just send us the timestamps. Link to, <laughs> link to the video and timestamps. Yeah, yeah, that's a great thing to do. Okay, well, we're going to call this to a close. God bless you. We'll see you next time.